Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude, we're still trekking through Jude together. So find Revelation, go left. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read a passage from Jeremiah to just um, kind of season our minds for the things we're about to talk about this morning. The prophet Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them away from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now to your holy word, asking for strength of mind, strengthen our spirits, confidence in our hearts to believe the things that are written, and humility to receive them as true. Lord, would you please give us a clear picture of the things you intend for us this morning in your word. Grant strength to us, Lord, and especially to the preacher now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we'll be in Jude, verses 8 through 10, verses 8 through 10, and I, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this exposition of Jude. I've really found myself being challenged to think more closely about some things. Uh, my wife and I are definitely talking a lot in the car, both to and from church, uh, about these things, so it's been really good for us to talk about. Uh, in our last time together, we saw really three notorious examples of God's judgment, which is, was a prefiguring of the judgment of apostates. We saw Israel and their judgment, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And I hope we found those to be instructive. I, I sensed a little bit of a, a temperature change in the room as those things were being spoken about, and I think that's the intent of the text. Uh, one brother put it this way. It was almost like a, a shot across the bow of history for us all, and I agree with that. Uh, having laid out these historical examples of Israel, the angels, and Sodom, Jude now transitions to really a second set of evidences against apostate false teachers in verses 8 through 10. And he does this in sets of threes, five, six, and seven, three examples. Uh, and this is the, really the pattern all the way to verse 13. Um, 
three charges against them, which we'll see in these verses, 8, 9, and 10, and then three comparisons with the sins of wicked men in verses 11, 12, and 13. And I think he's doing this in a way to help us remember, to remind us uh, as a a method of, of memory. And so three threes really are what we're dealing with here. So concerning verses 8 through 10, Jude moves to the second set of evidences uh, regarding apostates or false teachers. And we could call this section of Scripture three tests of an apostate or three characteristics. I've named or titled this sermon three charges against apostates, three charges against apostates. And in bringing the charge, Jude really helps us to nail down their identity, to identify them, to nail down who they are. Uh, Last time we dealt with judgment, this time we're dealing with identity. And whatever we want to call it, these three things, I think we can say this, without fail, these are the marks of an apostate false teacher. If you want to know the three things to look out for as a Christian, To mark out a false teacher, these are the three things, okay? So we're going to handle our text in four points. First, we're going to see their reckless regard. Second, their deluded dreaming. Third, their clear-cut charges, and that's where we'll get the three uh, marks of identity. And then fourth, their destructive instincts, and I hope everyone's got an outline of the sermon. So... Let's begin verse 8. We'll read verses 8 through 10 and begin our exposition. So Jude says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So first of all, I want you to see their reckless regard. It comes from the first half of verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people. That little word yet is a very telling word transitional word when considered. It could also be translated, nevertheless, nevertheless. In verses 5 through 7, we felt the weight of the things explained, the weight of God's judgment on Israel, the weight of God's judgment on angels who left their proper dwelling, they rebelled against authority, and the weight of God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah for sexual immorality. And again, the temperature of the room seemed to change as we talked about those things. Despite all that was said, despite those very familiar examples to Israel, the people of God, these men, the text says, nevertheless, blow right past what has just been said and plow headlong into destruction. You will, you will not find an apostate false teacher dealing with the judgment passages in the Old Testament like Jude does in his text. Nevertheless, these men do the exact same things. And it's an example of the, really the utter hardness of the human heart. And it's wrapped up in that little word, yet, nonetheless. It reminds me of what the Lord said in Luke 16. 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Think of this. 39 books in the Old Testament, 929 chapters, over 23,000 verses, over 600,000 words will not do it. Neither will three unmistakable examples of judgment. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the utter hardness of heart of a false teacher. Short of God's sovereign work changing their dead heart, there is no amount of anything that would convince them. Indeed, the scripture is true. They are trapped in the cords of their sin. Proverbs 5.22. So the text says, yet in like manner, these people. And I want you to stop here for just a moment, just right at the outset, and be amazed. My wife and I were talking about this on the drive-in. Be amazed that you are in Christ. We call it amazing grace, do we not? Be amazed that he has redeemed that sort of heart. You rejected him one time. You lived opposed to him at one time. Wonder at the grace of God in your life. How can it be? How can it be? Wonder how easily you could have been included forever in that fateful statement, yet in like manner. But for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. It's a cause for great humility among us as believers. So notice the arrogance of these apostate false teachers. Notice their reckless regard for the judgments of God. They have no regard for God's judgments. Second point, notice their deluded dreaming. Verse 8b, second statement there, relying on their dreams. Jude makes uh, really an essential background connection here for us that connects these, these false teachers to their ancient prototype. It wasn't explicitly mentioned in the verses before, but he assumes his readers know what's going on. And if you don't know what's going on, here it is. Dreamers infect the people of God. Dreamers infect the people of God. And the people begin to live in sin. That's why I began with a passage from Jeremiah 23. There was then, and there is now, a competing voice of truth. And we saw that from our passage in Jeremiah that I opened with. Now, the New American Standard, I think, does a better job at making this connection to these uh, people of old, these ancient prototypes, when it says, also by dreaming. What was going on in Israel? What was going on among all those who rejected God's word? They were dreaming, and they had prophets among them who were dreaming up things in their own heads. And they were leading the people astray, and they were leading them right into sin. Also by dreaming like their predecessors, and it betrays their identity with these specific characteristics that we'll get into in just a moment. Now, this word in Greek, in, in the original, relying on their dreams is really a specific word in the New Testament. It's really an unmistakable word. 
Uh, there is another word used for dreams in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Greek. But this word is used only one other time in the New Testament. And maybe you can guess where I'm going for those of you who are tuned in to false prophets and have, are fighting against those things. You come from maybe a charismatic background. It's the, it's the Greek word that occurs in Acts 2.17, where Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, quotes Joel. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Same word here. These false prophets rely on their dreams, and this same word is used in Joel 2.28. Now, Peter uses this word in a positive way, because dreams were a very well-known Old Testament form of divine revelation. The church, the early church before the canon was closed, had men who would speak to the church through the divine agency of dreams. The word refers to revelatory dreams associated with visions or prophecies. But here in our text, the word is used to scorn and reject false prophets. Now, how can Jude speak in this way? He wasn't ignorant of the things of Pentecost. He wasn't ignorant of men dreaming dreams, that prophecy being fulfilled. I think, I think we need to observe this. Before the death of, and really even during the lifetime of the apostles, we see revelatory things like dreams fading from the scene. Let me say that again. Before the death of, during the lifetime of the apostles, we see revelatory things like dreams fading from the scene. Jude's own really juxtaposition of these two things proves the point. He's just argued in verse 3 that we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He puts that over against dreams. Dreamers speaking in the church things they dream up in their own heads. Putting these two things at odds with one another I think is a strong evidence of this movement away from the former things, dreams, visions, tongues, miracles, to what we have, Scripture alone. Jude appeals to us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we can see it even here in his text. There are no more dreamers in the church. Make no doubt about it. If someone brings a dream, even in Jude's time, it's to be rejected. And they're said to rely on their dreams. These apostates rely on their dreams. It's the final sentence in which they rest. There was something in their lives more ultimate than the word of God. Dreaming on their part was not simply their imagination. These apostate teachers claimed one unmistakable thing. They were agents of divine revelation. They were agents of divine revelation. Claiming this divine revelation, they used it as the basis of their practice. We'll see that in just a moment. They lived by it. They staked their lives on it. And they used it as the basis for rivalry among those who held to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Make no mistake about it, beloved. They attacked sola scriptura. They attack the scripture alone as a sole infallible rule of faith and practice. They attack the sufficiency of the scripture. 
They used it as a mechanism to challenge those who would say, God's word is final. These apostate false teachers were acting on the basis of their personal revelation. If you scan down just to verse 10 really quickly, Jude says they live on instinct. You want to know what's going on in a false teacher's head as he's on stage, I won't even call it a pulpit, as he's on stage babbling nonsense, it is utter and complete instinct. Instinct alone, like an unreasoning animal, Jude says. So this was the the background problem in Israel. This was the background problem that plagued Israel. It was the downfall of angels. It was what ultimately destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the ancient sin of Adam and Eve. They forsook the word of the Lord. They forsook the word of the Lord. They listened to dreamers. This brings me to just a, an observation, or actually three observations here. Number one, notice that men are dreamers by nature. The flesh is a dreamer. I'm thinking of an old 60s or 70s song. It was the Pharisee, think of this, it was the Pharisee who standing by himself dreamed that he was not as bad as other men. I, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He dreamed he was better than other men. It was the church in Laodicea who dreamed that it was in a good and rich position with God. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing not knowing that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It was Uzzah who dreamed his works were good because they were done with good intentions. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. Truly, the proverb says, Proverbs 16.25, There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. Men by nature are dreamers. Second observation, dreamers in the church are a test for us. They are a test. If you read Deuteronomy 13, I think it's very, very clear as to why God suffers these men to be within, quote-unquote, the ranks of the church. God suffers dreamers... Here in Deuteronomy 13, he says, To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. God does this. God leaves men, false prophets, in the church to trouble us in order to distinguish the true from the false. To expose who is truly a hypocrite and who is truly of him. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must be factions, heresies among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And this is the kind hand of God for us. It's a way of burning off the dross of the world in our lives, getting us back to the source of what we truly trust and believe in, the word of God. Dreamers in the church are a test. Never forget that. And thirdly, only the truth of God's word sanctifies. Only the truth of God's word sanctifies. What does John 17, 17 say? Some of you have that memorized. Sanctify them in the truth. Your dreams are truth. 
Your visions are truth. Your prophecies are truth. Your word is truth. But what's that very first word? Sanctify them in the truth. No man is made or kept holy any other way. Truth, the imperishable, living, and abiding word of God is the root of holiness. Let me say that again. Truth, the imperishable, living, and abiding word of God is the root of holiness. There is nothing else. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. How can a man escape the judgment who says, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments? It is a sobering question. This man is a dreamer, and he's really a living nightmare for the church. Only the truth of God's word sanctifies. So we've seen their deluded dreaming. Third, their clear-cut charges. We've seen that they disregard the example of God's judgment. They unhitch themselves from the word of God by relying on their dreams. And dreamers end up predisposing themselves to sinful living. Unclean thinking, we could say it this way, unclean thinking leads to unclean living. I think we discovered this in what chapter 3 of basic Christian doctrines. Right orthodoxy produces right orthopraxy. Unclean living will result in, or unclean thinking will result in unclean living. Jude says that those who rely on their dreams betray their identity with some very specific characteristics. And he brings these three charges or marks against their character. And again, if you want to spot a false teacher, an apostate, here's the list. Here's the list. Number one, or letter A, they defile the flesh. He begins this list by saying they defile the flesh. Now, this is in connection with the the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned earlier. In the word, the original means to stain or dye, to defile. Using this word, Jude draws on a profound Old Testament idea regarding the really external, external ceremonial purity from Leviticus. Jude and other New Testament writers internalize this idea and use it to refer to an inner defilement, an inner apostasy from God. You can be externally here, but internally gone. Jude is accusing the apostates of sexual sin that stains their very character. What they have done externally is only a reflection of what is true about them internally. Like Sodom, they transgress the proper bounds of sexual purity. And this is evidenced by the word flesh. They defile the flesh. It's a very common Greek word for those who have studied it. Sarks. Sarks. Flesh. And it means just that. The flesh of the body. Peter, 2 Peter 2, if you want to kind of compare notes as you read through Jude, 2 Peter 2 is a companion volume to Jude 
concerning this topic. He says, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They defile not only their flesh, but they defile the flesh of others as well. Listen to the warning of Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. These men are not just infecting themselves. They're not just infected with false doctrine. They're infecting others. They're infecting others. Many become defiled by them. That's the same word. Jude later tells us how to rescue those infected by them. In verse 23 of his letter, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And we're going to get there. How we, how we talk about how we treat seducers is vastly different in the New Testament than how we treat those who are seduced. We give no quarter to one, and we plead with mercy, with fear for others. Observation. You and I cannot entertain apostate false teachers and remain unspotted. You just can't do it. You and I cannot entertain apostate false teachers and remain unspotted. I just want to say period. Case closed. Don't tamper with them. It's damaged goods. It will not lead to anything that honors God. These men are not to be tampered with. They're not to be entertained. This is why apostates are such dangers to the church. They can infect you. They can infect others. 2 Peter 2, again, Peter says, Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They entice people to sensual passions of the flesh. Come over here. Just a little compromise. We need to know how to deal with the homosexual community. We need to accept them in, unrepentant. Being stained, apostates contaminate others. They may hide it for a time. Their ministry may look polished. They may sell many books. They may have a TV program. And we may may never discover these things firsthand. But make no mistake about it. Apostate false teachers are devoid of God's spirit. That's Jude, verse 19. And they crave only one thing, the flesh. The flesh. They are immoral in heart and conduct. And so this is the first mark of an apostate false teacher. They defile the flesh. And by it, they defile many others. Second mark of a false teacher is they reject authority. So after immorality, having shaken off God's authoritative word, they move really to shake off all authority. All authority. This is is in connection with the fallen angels mentioned in the previous verses. Apostates are insubordinate. It's a telling fact. Think about this. He's making a connection here for us, and this can help us in In cases of counseling, friends, other brothers and sisters in Christ who are trapped in sexual sin, it's a telling fact that when a person abandons themselves to defiling passions, they also seek to destroy order. 
Those two seem to go hand in hand in the scripture. When, they, when someone seeks, uh, when someone is tied up with defiling passions, they seek to destroy and abandon all order. They buck the system, I guess you could say it that way. Jude has already made this connection for us previously in verse 4 when he says that the apostates pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. First, there's sexual abandonment, and second, there's the destruction of order. The destruction of order. Now, it's no wonder that those who are championing a sexual revolution among us in America are the same ones that are seeking to overthrow any law that would restrain their passions. Ober, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, you know, that, that was a very infamous Supreme Court decision in 2015. It granted same-sex couples the same terms and conditions as the marriage of opposite-sex couples. Now, all that was was an externalization of what had been brewing in the heart of America for decades. We had given ourselves over in the heart to all sorts of lusts and passions. That was just the externalization of those things. Ask yourself this question. Who is on the front line protesting the revolution of any law that would hinder sexual conduct in any way? Who's up there? Their hair color normally matches their political party. It's those who are indulging in the same things themselves. Sadly, the church reflects the same pattern. On, on the statement or the question, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior, behavior doesn't apply today. This was given out by Ligonier's State of Theology. If you've never visited that website, I'd encourage you to do that, stateoftheology.com. They posed this, this phrase to see how people related to it. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. 70%, now they're asking the professing church at this point, 70% of those asked did not check that they strongly agree with that statement. In other words, 70% are either waffling on the idea, they're not sure about the idea, or they strongly agree with the idea that what the Bible says about sexuality does not apply today. Does not apply. I think it's proof that once we abandon ourselves sexually, then we destroy order. And the word authority here in Jude 8 is the same word that we get the word Lord. Kurios, Lord. This is where the apostates begin. They begin by rejecting Christ. They deny him and they disown him. And from that point, the apostate puts himself really on a slippery slope. If, what, if we follow the reasoning of Jude and the example of the angelic beings who did not stay within their proper dwelling, I think we can say that this rejection of Christ really forms the basis of the apostate's rejection of all human authority, wherever the lordship of Christ is found, wherever it's found. Think, think of these things. Apostates reject the lordship of Christ in the church as emissaries of Christ commissioned by him to lay the foundation of the church. 
The apostles were delegated special authority by Christ to speak on his behalf. Such was their authority that if you reject the apostle, you reject Christ. Whoever receives you, Jesus says in Matthew 10, receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Reject the apostle, reject Christ. These apostate false teachers reject apostolic authority. The apostle John, speaking of apostate false teachers, ones he calls antichrists, says this. They, meaning false teachers, went out from us. The us there is the apostolic authority. He's not just talking about generally walking away from the Christian community. He's talking about false teachers who have stepped out from under the apostles' authority. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. 1 John 2.19 They apostatized. They apostatized. They went beyond what was written. They rejected sola scriptura. And by rejecting the word of the Lord given by the apostles, they rejected the Lord. This is why these men are dreamers. They reject God and his holy word. But also it's a rejection of Christ in civil government. Um, There are some really stark examples, and I'll give you one in just a moment, of heretics, apostates, causing utter chaos in society. But Romans 13 is clear, beloved. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Seducers hate civil authority. Apostates hate civil authority because it's been instituted by God to restrain the flesh. Having been granted authority by God over the civil sphere in matters of the second table of the law, the civil magistrate not only uh, promotes the good, but restrains and punishes the evil. It's hard to imagine in our day our, our government functioning like that, but that is its original intent. Apostates, if they could have their own way, would shake off everything that comes to them by way of authority, whether divine or earthly. It doesn't matter. They want their way, and they want it now. To whom are they accountable? No one. They reject authority. Look at the text. It is plain. They reject authority. I think this kind of brings us to a, a connection and an observation. Find a person who has deep sin, sexual sin, and you're probably very, very close to finding a person who has a deep problem with authority. Let me say that again. You find a person who has a deep problem with sexual sin, and you're probably very close to finding a person who has a deep problem with authority. There is a very dark and unavoidable connection at this point. This brings me to another observation. Behold the power and danger of false doctrine. Behold the power and danger of false doctrine. So we've talked about they defile the flesh, they reject authority, but think about what false doctrine does. 
it kills your conscience. It kills your conscience. It numbs your conscience to the point to where you reject and destroy order. Think of it. I picked up Fox's Book of Martyrs off of my shelf, and I was thumbing through some historical examples of what this looked like in the early church. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's, re- it's uh, recorded that under the Arian heretics of the early centuries of the church, these men caused absolute societal chaos. Chaos. Not order. Chaos. Arius was a heretic who taught that the Son of God was created and not eternal. There's his heresy. He was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325. After the death of Constantine, Arians crept into favor with Constantine's son, Constantius. Now, we know of Athanasius, right? Athanasius contramundum, against the world. This was a man who was alive at the time. Athanasius and other men who stood for truth were banished from their churches, and Arian pastors, if we could use that word, filled their positions. Christian bishops were martyred. Other Christians were tormented with the help of the civil government. Another reason why we just don't need to go there. Churches were shut down. Severe persecutions upon the Christians at that time were, as is recorded, quote, as great as those that had been practiced by the pagan idolaters. If a man accused of being a Christian made his escape, then his whole family was massacred and his effects confiscated. That's what heresy does to a culture. That's what heresy does. It numbs the conscience, it rejects authority, and it makes a chaos out of society. It's been seen time and time again in church history. False doctrine kills the conscience and then causes societal chaos. Behold its power. But third mark of a false teacher, and probably the most difficult, because I'm sure some of you have already looked into this. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Having defiled the flesh, having rejected authority, the text says the third mark of an apostate false teacher is they, quote, blaspheme the glorious ones. This is in connection with Israel mentioned in verse 5. Here we meet with really a difficult text, Um, It's a text which Jude utilizes really a portion of Jewish apocryphal literature to explain. Who are these glorious ones? Verse 8. Some have suggested they're angels. I have to humbly disagree. And I'm going to make my case that Jude is not speaking of blaspheming angels but speaking of the officers of the church, servants of God, ministers of God, do these apostates blaspheme civil authorities? Yes, they do. Do they blaspheme probably everything that's holy? Yes, they do. But I think here Jude is specifically speaking of those officers in the church. They ultimately strike at the heart of God's mouthpieces of truth, ministers of the gospel, 
You have to ask yourself this question. Who else stands in direct opposition to their way? It's those who are loyal to the truth of Christ. It's those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are these glorious ones? And what's my case? First, I think we can make a a case that officers of the church are presented in Scripture as those who are due respect and invested with power by God for the governing of the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says obedience and submission are due to them. 1 Thessalonians 5 says respect and honor are due to them. Speaking lightly of them, 1 Timothy 5.19 is absolutely forbidden. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And their oversight of the church is recorded in heaven. John 20.23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness, if you, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We have to see that ministers of the gospel are presented in Scripture as those who are invested with power by God for the governing of the church and are due respect and obedience. Secondly, consider Moses, this fellow preacher. Who was Moses in the household of God? And I really appreciate the lesson this morning. It was was really good. I think it's going to tie in well. Moses was appointed as a servant of God to testify of the things that were spoken of later, Hebrews 3, 5. Hebrews 3, 3 says he carried a certain glory about him. Doxa, glory. He was loved by the true Israel, Deuteronomy 34, 8. He was highly esteemed by them. And it's written in Deuteronomy 34, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was according to our text, a glorious one. Third, third piece of evidence that Jude is speaking of ministers of the gospel and not angels, the word doxa, glory, here translated glorious one, is linked directly to the Old Testament with the glory of Moses in Exodus 34.30. When he came down from the mountain, what does it say about Moses' face It shone with what? Glory. It was a reflection of the divine. Fourth, the apostle clarifies that if the ministry of death and its minister, talking about the old covenant here under the law, carried such a glory, the ministry of the spirit and its ministers have even more glory. Same word, doxa glory. I encourage you to go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Ministers of the new covenant are said here to bear a glory because the message that they bring is a glorious message. Fifth, I want you to look at Jude 9. This is the rub. Consider Jude's argument in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this text comes from an intertestamental text, end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New. comes right there in the middle. It's a text called the Assumption of Moses. 
And it really fills in the gap about what happened in that mysterious case concerning the body of Moses. Why should the devil dispute about the body of Moses? It's recorded in Deuteronomy 34 that Moses was buried outside the promised land and that the Lord himself buried him. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day, verse 6. Now, this is no small matter. Over this man's body, two angels of the highest order, but really opposing character, engage in a controversy over him. But why? Why? Calvin is helpful here. Although the cause of Moses' body concealment is not stated, so you don't see it explicitly stated in Deuteronomy 34, it appears to have been God's intention to prevent superstition. For it was not unusual with the Jews, and it is a custom for which Christ reproves them, that they killed the prophets and then they paid reverence to their tombs. It would have been therefore probable that in order to blot out the recollection of their ingratitude, that they would have paid superstitious veneration to the holy prophet and so have carried his corpse into the land from which the sentence of God had excluded it. In other words, these are Scott's translation of Calvin, okay? In other words, God, by divine decree, barred Moses from entering Canaan because of sin. And he buried him in an unknown tomb to prevent Israel from worshiping his bones. They were idol worshipers of the worst sort, and they would have worshipped him. So that's our fifth argument as to why this dispute is about uh, servants of God, ministers of God, and not angels. Sixth, if the phrase, as we've pointed out, defiling the flesh can be linked with Sodom and Gomorrah, if rejecting authority can be linked with the apostate angels, it seems very natural to link the phrase blaspheming the glorious ones to Israel's slander of its leaders. You following that argument? Especially since Jude references the Exodus generation that was led by none other than Moses. Seventh and last evidence because seven is a perfect number. I had more, but I left them out. Seventh, the apostate's practice is directly linked by Jude in verse 11 with Korah's rebellion from number 16. Scan down to verse 11. Woe to them. They walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Number 16 is a plain example of what happened in Korah's rebellion. What happened? You can guess it. It was a rebellion against none other than the leadership of the church, Moses and Aaron. So making these connections, I believe, helps us see clearly with whom Jude is concerned. It's the ministers of the Lord that are blasphemed or slandered by apostates. Could these wicked men slander angels? Yes, they could. I don't think that's what this text is saying here. But what's the bottom line argument from verse 9? What's the bottom line? 
What is Jude trying to say by bringing in this example for us? Here's the bottom line. If an archangel such as Michael would not bring a blasphemous judgment against such a glorious one as Moses, a man who had no doubt sinned but was redeemed, but with holy fear he reserved the judgment to God, how will these apostates who blaspheme ministers of the gospel escape the judgment of God? Do you see that? Whose glory is greater? Ministers of the new covenant or ministers of the old? The glory of Moses' ministry or the glory of the new covenant minister? What great judgment will apostates bear who speak evil of these sacred things? I hope you feel the weight of that argument. Grumbling, slander, bringing a charge. You see the gravity of slandering God's ministers. Calvin comments here, While such moderation is shown by angels, these apostates fearlessly give vent to impious and unbridled blasphemies. The men who stand directly opposed to them are the objects of their greatest hatred. If you listen to any false teacher, you will notice their utter mockery of faithful ministers of the gospel. Later, Jude just lays it out, verse 14. These are grumblers. They're grumblers. Truly, apostates rush in where angels fear to tread. So the third mark of an apostate is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. They hate true preachers of righteousness. They always have, and they always will. Well, fourth and lastly, their destructive instincts. We've seen their reckless regard for the examples of sure judgment upon them. We've seen their deluded dreaming by unhitching themselves from Scripture. We've seen their clear-cut charges. They are immoral and subordinate slanderers of God's ministers. And finally, we see their destructive instincts. Verse 10 reads this way, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Jude places the apostate's instinct against the reasoning and judgment of Scripture. For the apostate to be on the cutting edge of living was to live life hanging on emotion like a raw animal. There was nothing higher for them than basic instinct. Living this way, they criticize, they slander, and they blaspheme everything outside of their experience. They are spiritually ignorant people. What does God's word say? Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They blaspheme Christ. They blaspheme his lordship in the church. 
They blaspheme God's ministers. Everything they say doesn't come from an apprehension of spiritual truths. The text in 1 Corinthians 2 is clear. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. What they say comes from total and absolute darkness. Total and absolute darkness. They do not understand. Look at the text. These people blaspheme all they do not understand. They have no spiritual understanding. Jude closes by saying their thoughts about spiritual matters rise no higher than a beast. And it's a sad fact of their existence. They are destroyed by their instinct. In a word, they self-destruct, both in this life and for all eternity. Well, beloved, these are marks of a false teacher, marks of an apostate. These are sobering things for us to consider. And I say, let the dreamer dream. Their charges are clear. They will self-destruct. But let us, let us be people of the book. Jeremiah can have the final word, and we'll close here with prayer. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. We must answer that question firmly within our hearts today. What has straw in common with wheat, beloved? Nothing. Nothing. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that gives us warning and clarity. You love us. You love us to teach us these things. I pray, Lord, that what we've discovered this morning stirs our heart to be more discerning in our culture and in the church about false teachers, apostates. Lord, be glorified today. Thank you so much for your word. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.